our favorite segment, the amazing great and amusing. Yeah, sorry. Pick yourselves up. I don't know what to do. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by who the hosts of this show are. So (laughs) we have, as announced on, maybe it wasn't our last episode, maybe it was two episodes, we announced that Don would be coming back part-time as a host of the show. Chris Gill is here with us as always. Hello, Chris. Hey, Matt. How are you? Doing well, but we have a a new host of the podcast who is going to be trading off places with Don, and that is Dr. Jessica Liebler. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Matt and Chris. So nice to be joining you. So great to have you with us, Jess. Thanks. And we are so happy that you are here from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. And as a reminder to all of our listeners, if you could be so kind as to head over to the iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use and you could give us a rating, we would very much appreciate it. We'd also love it if you check out the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org where you can go for learning lifelong tools from the BU School of Public Health. That's BU's Hub for Lifelong Learning, it's Population Health Exchange. So now on to the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effectiveness, or maybe lack thereof, of probiotics, something that I know Chris takes every day. (laughs) In the, uh, the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about a paper on cognitive biases in a pandemic. And then in our... I just wanted to mention that probiotics are biotics that have lost their amateur status. So they've, they've gone professional, which means they can no longer compete in the Olympics. That's correct. And they used to be JV biotics. Right. JV, right. JV. Yeah. They've made it to the varsity squad. Right. It nice. was headed by Michael Jordan. <laughs> right. Okay. I think we have officially demonstrated our lack of understanding of sports. <laughs> I think Michael, jo- Michael Jordan, too. That, that demonstrates our age, I think, more than anything. <laughs> I did, sorry. Who's Michael Jordan? I don't I don't. Only... <laughs> I know who LeBron James is, but Michael Jordan never heard of him. Uh, So then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or we will find out whether Jessica is an amazing or an amusing type. Mm, The mystery. The mystery builds. The mystery builds. So in segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of probiotics in care home residents. This one was published in JAMA, and the study was entitled Effect of Probiotic Use on Antibiotic Administration Among Care Home Residents, a Randomized Clinical Trial, by first author Christopher Butler of the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. I didn't see a lot of headlines for this one, so I'll give you the one that I found, which was from the Two Minute Medicine. Don't know what that is, but the Two Minute Medicine, call it a call it a online news service, who says daily oral probiotic combination not effective at reducing antibiotic use for all-cause infection among care home residents. So that is all I've got on that. Jessica, if you could start off by telling us what the study was about and what they did and what they found. Sure. I think it's hard for research studies to get too much airtime in this time of COVID anyway. So I have a feeling that if this one came out at a different moment in time, it may have gotten a little, might have been a little more newsworthy. I agree with you. It didn't get a huge amount of coverage. So anyway, as Matt was saying, this was a study that was in the UK looking at the effect of probiotic administration, a daily oral probiotic combination on antibiotic usage among people living in nursing homes among older adults living in, they call them care homes in the UK. And as we know, probiotics, just as a bit of background on why this study might have been done or why it was done, probiotics are widely used to support GI health and to prevent infections. And studies on pediatric populations have shown some promise in reducing incidence of diarrhea or reducing need for antibiotics. However, although probiotics are consumed widely by people across the, the spectrum, 
spectrum in our population, um, there's really limited evidence that they have the intended effect across the board. And so, so this group, they were looking, as I said, whether um, daily oral probiotic combination of two commonly used probiotics. The first is lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. So this, just as, again, by a little means of background, this is a bacteria that is often, although perhaps transiently found in the gut in a normal circumstance. It's one of, it's you know, considered commensal bacteria or the friendly bacteria compared to the pathogenic bacteria that may cause disease. It produces the enzyme lactase in the gut, so it breaks down sugar lactose to lactic acid. And it is widely used for those of you who have purchased over-the-counter products like Culturel, the kind of digestive probiotic supplements that you can buy at the drugstore. This is this lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. That's one. That's the core component of that sort of over-the-counter medication. It is used to treat. They call it dysbiotic bacterial overgrowth. So dysbiotic means kind of as a basis of disruption of the normal gut biota. And it's believed, as I said, to be transient in the gut and not permanent. Binds to the gut mucosa and part. And it's it's also a component of many yogurts, cheeses, and supplements. So it's in. It's in quite a number of foods and consumer products already. The second probiotic that they used is another one. And so you will learn over my time in this, in this podcast, I do not do great at pronouncing these long medical words. So you have to well, give me some. Welcome to the some club. All right, here, the club. here we go. Bifidobacterium animalis, subspecies Lactus BB12. So mm. this was the second. This was a second, the mouthful the second probiotic that they used in this study. This one also is a constituent of the normal gut microbiota of the intestinal tract, although again, does not seem to be a permanent or resident species. It seems to be somewhat transient. And this is the component that's used in those specialty yogurts, for example, like Activa or the Danon products um, that are advertised to have a probiotic component. And it's used for treating GI symptoms like IBS or constipation. And this one, generally lives in the colon. Okay, So these are just in terms of the two probiotics that were a part of this study. Those are the two. This study is called, they gave it a pretty awesome acronym, I thought, mm. although unrelated to probiotics. It's called the PRINCESS trial, mm -hmm. the probiotics to reduce infections in care home residents. As I said, it's based in the UK. There were 310 participants, and it's a placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial, a multi-center trial, and double-blinded. Okay, The study took place between 2016 and 2018. The eligibility criteria for the participants are 65 and up, um, living in a nursing home, and people were excluded if they were immunocompromised or already taking in an ongoing way some probiotic formulation. Okay, so the primary outcome, they had a number, they had a primary outcome and then a large series of secondary outcomes, and we'll discuss how, if large was too many secondary outcomes, but we'll discuss that a little later. Um, their primary outcomes was the total number of systemic antibiotic administration days over the total number of days the participant was observed in the study. Okay, so they're looking at, basically the research question they're looking at is whether the people who were dosed with these two probiotics experienced fewer fewer days of systemic antibiotic administration during the one-year study period compared to the people who were dosed with placebo. Okay, so days of systemic antibiotic administration, um, the core outcome. The secondary outcome, they looked at a series of secondary outcomes looking specifically at what was the health outcome that was linked to antibiotic administration. So total number of days of antibiotic administration specifically by different sorts of infection categories over their participant days. So some of the infection categories they looked at were UTIs, were gastrointestinal infections, were respiratory tract infections, and then they further distinguished between upper and lower respiratory tract infections. They looked at SSTIs, skin and soft tissue infections, unexplained fever, diarrhea, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, clostridium difficile, C. diff incidence, and then they also used a bunch of quality of life metrics to see if the probiotic administration was associated with quality of life or well-being metrics. They used two validated scales in this population of older people. They also looked at pathogens in the stool. 
which was an interesting analysis that we can talk about, including the two species of bacteria that were that the some of the participants were dosed with and with the probiotics, and then the number and duration of hospital stays and deaths. So they had a whole slew of secondary outcomes within their 310 study participants. And so what happened in this study is study team nurses made weekly visits to each of the care centers and recorded all kinds of weekly data for the study participants, including the amount of probiotics that was given and the amount of placebo, signs of infection, use of antibiotics, any kind of reported diarrhea, hospitalization, adverse events. And they also had one of the benefits of this study was that they have a tremendous amount of dietary data, medical data on people who were living in nursing homes. Their every move in a good nursing home should be categorized and denoted in part of in their medical record. So there should be a lot of fairly high quality data on exposures, on health, on outcomes, on food, and on all sorts of um, other things regarding these um, participants. So then the study nurses collected medical data from the patient's daily record. They administered the, here's a couple, uh, health utility scales, the EuroQual Group 5 Dimension Self-Report, the EQ5D. And they also administered the ICEPOP capability measure, which is the Older People Wellbeing Questionnaire. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. The, the, those two, those two names. I like the ice pop. Yeah, yeah. Ice, ice pop. It's like you know a chill. So they collected these measures at baseline three months and twelve months, and they also collected stool and saliva samples from the participants at baseline three months and 12 months, okay? So jumping into there, that's kind of the overall picture of their design. Jumping into the analysis, they used two-level negative binomial regression, accounting for participants nested within the nursing home. So that was kind of the level of nesting. They also used similar uh, Poisson regressions also with kind of a two-level structure. They did note in their section on statistical analysis, that because of the sheer number of secondary outcomes, the analyses for these secondary outcomes should be considered exploratory because of multiple comparison problems, and they did not do any adjusting for multiple comparison problems. Okay. So for the the 12-month study period, at the end of the 12-month study period, we'll jump into some results, um, about 63% of the participants were alive, and I don't have a good sense as to whether or not that's that's good or not on the basis of nursing home populations, but no, no, seemed seemed okay to me. And so as it related to their core research question, looking at whether the probiotic versus placebo was related to different number of days of um, systemic antibiotic treatment, they did not find a difference between the probiotic group and the placebo group. So in the probiotic group, over the study period, they had um, the mean antibiotic administrated days was 12.9, so a little less than 13 days of um, antibiotic use in the probiotic group during the study period. And the confidence interval ranged from zero to 18, a little more than 18 days. For the placebo group, it was 12 days with the confidence interval, 95% confidence interval, ranging from zero days to about 17 days. Okay, The mean difference in antibiotic days was 0.9 days, so a little bit less than one day. With that confidence interval obviously crossing zero, so negative three days and a little bit going up to about five days, and their adjusted incidence rate ratio was 1.3, okay? And um, again, with the confidence interval 0.08 to kind of 1.6, okay? In looking at their secondary outcomes, and they noted a few a few things that are, are worth mentioning. Um, first of all, they noted more lower respiratory tract infections among the probiotic group compared to the placebo group. And this was a statistically significant finding um, at the 5% level. So the incidence rate ratio was 1.4, okay? And 1.1 to 1.9 was the confidence interval there. So, you know, a surprise, the probiotic group seemed to have more lower respiratory tract infections than the placebo group. They also found longer duration of infection for those who had, this is a mouthful, longer duration of infection for those with more than one systemic infection among participants in the placebo group compared to the, uh, sorry, in the probiotic group compared to the placebo group, but the effect was very small Mm -hmm. with the incidence rate ratio being just 0.1. Okay, and they didn't they didn't find other differences in the treatment and the placebo group by infectious disease outcomes by hospitalization or death. But they did find, too, that those who had taken the probiotics had more cumulative days of diarrhea, unfortunately. But that was not a significant difference. But it was, you know, six point eight days versus four point four days. You could argue 
to an individual, that might be significant, two extra days of diarrhea. The probiotic group had a lower well-being score at the three-month follow-up, but not at baseline or 12 months. And so they didn't the authors didn't really jump into that finding as too important. What was very interesting to me in looking at this, one of their findings too is, as I mentioned earlier, they look to analyze stool for the probiotic bacteria that they were dosing the treatment group with. And so as they looked in the stool samples at baseline, they found these probiotics in both groups in both arms of the study. And that's probably to be expected, given that at times these are natural constituents in the gut microbiome. And in fact, though, what was interesting is that more of the stool samples from the placebo group seemed to grow the bifidobacterium compared to the, pro compared to the probiotic group. And also 25% of the placebo participants provided stool samples that, grow, that grew lactobacillus, which was one of the two probiotics as well. Probiotic group had more samples that grew C. diff. And it's, you know, and the authors note, and we note too, that these are very small counts here. So in terms of, you know, determining whether or not these, these levels are important, that's, that's a separate question. But it does speak to the possibility that both, that the, the, Delineation of the treatment was not pure, mm -hmm. so to speak, that the placebo group also was exposed either exogenously or endogenously to the, to the very probiotics that were part of this study, that were part of the treatment. And so the authors touched on that, although maybe not as much as I would have asked them to. So in any event, I think I, we could certainly jump in and talk about it. It's an, definitely an interesting study. I think there's some things they could have done to speak a little bit more to the microbiome mm. and things that they could have done to speak more to their underlying biological argument as to why oral consumption of probiotics would affect systemic infection that would be treated by antibiotics and kind of what is the biology there beyond kind of GI conditions. So anyway, I will let all of you jump in. That's the okay. background. All right. So overall, you'd say that a randomized trial showing no benefit to probiotics. Chris, what do you think? Are you going to sell your, your stock in probiotic companies now? Mm, well, if, if, I, if I had any disposable income that would allow me to buy, have <laughs> bought stock in anything, maybe I would have spent it on, on something else. I, I have to confess that, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm not terribly surprised by the results of this study. And, mm. and I say that with you know, acknowledging that I have been very long a skeptic of the probiotic field, and and my skepticism kind of rested on on you know a few points. One is that many or most of the studies that I've read in the past on probiotics did not seem to be terribly well designed, so that they were vulnerable to selection and ascertainment bias or other biases, and and so I didn't I wasn't terribly persuaded by the results when they were positive, and and a good many of them are negative. So it's it's really you know reassuring to me to see like what I see here is a is a is very meticulously done carefully done randomized blinded double blinded controlled placebo trial with you know meticulous attention to you know the all these different outcomes which you know acknowledging that there's a couple of of suggestive sort of tantalizing hints that maybe there was an adverse effect related to to probiotics overall I, I'd say that the result was a complete wash that it didn't seem that probiotics did anything. And the second sort of source of my skepticism is that I can't sort of figure out mechanistically and biologically or immunologically why it should work in the first place. Right. You know, and then as you point out, Jessica, you know, both of these bacteria are normal constituents of the immune of the of the healthy gut. So I, I don't quite understand why, you know, what the theory is behind how adding them in when they are obviously being exposed regularly from the environment, why that would make any difference. And I, and I, I don't get that. And it's also sort of coming on the heels of quite a lot of interesting research in the last five to 10 years about the, the microbiome of the intestine, you know, which has turned out to be extraordinarily complicated, like just like a, a, you know, an ecosystem with all sorts of reciprocal loops of interaction between literally thousands and thousands of different bacterial species and yeasts, as well as parasites. And I mean, it's just, it is a complex ecosystem. And so one would sort of wondered, well, well, heck, why would throwing one particular bacterium into the middle of that 
have much of an outcome on anything when it, the whole thing is so complex. You know, it, it just seems like you're asking a lot of this, this one intervention. And so to see it come back as like, you know, in a very carefully studied way that there is really no impact whatsoever does not surprise me, but actually confirms all my prior skepticisms. Yeah, I have to say I, I share some of your skepticism going into it. And I, I do want to talk at some point about the the impact that some of the prior trial work might have had on the you know, feelings about whether or not this was going to work a priori. But I'm I am I'm interested to know whether or not, you know, if we were to play devil's advocate and take the other side, you know, is it possible that you know, this is not a large trial? So there was there was what about three hundred odd people in the in the study. It's just one study. And, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the wrong population. Maybe these patients were too old to benefit from from probiotics. Jess, what, what would you what would you say to that? It's a good question. I mean, I think in my understanding, and Chris, I know Chris has also been engaged in some of these studies on the microbiome, that the, the gut microbiome is fairly stable in adult life with the exception of times of illness. And it's even unclear if there, if kind of dietary studies, and some that I have read have been quite dramatic in terms of in doing a case crossover study where you're changing people's diets from, say, a totally meat diet to a totally plant-based diet, and then doing microbiota evaluations that actually very little changes in adults on the basis of these different exposures. And my understanding in children is that the gut microbiota is a little more changeable mm. in younger children. And some of the studies that have been done, I mean, I know, you know, my pediatrician, for example, often tells, you know, tells me to go out and get my kids this cultural yeah. product to, to treat diarrhea. And so many of the existing studies have been done in children. However, I mean, this is clearly the population at risk for, for severe systemic infections. Populations in nursing homes take vast amounts of antibiotics, experience antibiotic-resistant infections at very high levels. And there's a lot of meticulous data that's collected on them or that can be collected on them, you know, in using the right uh, group of collaborators. And so it's a logical population to study this question. But my sense of the literature is that the microbiota doesn't always change that much from these, these dietary exposure studies. But I, I agree with Chris that kind of the underlying biological argument here is not super clear to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think the idea that even if, you know, if you're dosing something in the gut microbiome, that you would expect some, some gut-related changes mm, seems more point. logical than like a skin and soft tissue infection, for example. I mean, Chris is, is absolutely right that there is, has been an explosion of microbiome-related research in the last 10 to 15 years. And it does seem to be, some of it seems like the microbiome controls everything. But I think you have to have a pretty specific argument. I think also, you know, when you, you know, when you make these changes, you can potentially cause, you know, they call it dysbiosis in the microbiome, which doesn't always have positive outcomes, even if you are, you know, there's competition within the bacterial species in the gut microbiome. And you add one, it affects the balance of whatever is going on in there. And that balance likely varies somewhat among individuals. And so there's also an argument that it could have a, a negative impact mm -hmm. as potentially well as a, a positive one. That's right. It's it's sort of the the absence of a really compelling biological theory for for why you know a single organism, unless it's like highly pathogenic and you know has some potent toxin, for example, that's going to really disrupt the function or the composition of the of the gut, you know, or you know triggers a syndrome that leads to clinicians to you know dose the patient with antibiotics, which is obviously going to have a profound effect on the on the you know the, the microbiome of the of the gut. So absent those two things, like adding two relatively neutral, you know, bacteria, I'm not gonna call them pathogens, but two two neutral bacteria to this this complex, you know, ecological uh, web of interactions, I, I don't I don't see why that, that should make a difference. And I also wanted to follow up on the on the the you know, the theory that you had, and I also shared that, you know, if you were going to see some effect, I would expect to have seen that in, in gut health or like, you know, incidences, you know, uh, of, of uh, you know, diarrhea, for example, during that year. But that's not what they saw. The only real possible effect they saw was on lower respiratory tract infections, mm -hmm. which I have to say makes no sense whatsoever, because the respiratory tract and the gut are, are not connected, at least not 
you know, directly in the way that, you know, there, there may be some common exposure up at the, you know, at, uh, you know, the, in the nasopharynx that leads to contact with both, but it's, it's not the same, you know? And so I'm, I'm very puzzled about why that alone would be the, the main apparent effect, which was of course, worth noting again, a, an, a, an apparent harm of the, the probiotic. Though I, I, my, I, my inclination I, is to not believe that either. It's just being a well, fortuitous I, I result. Say, I have thoughts on that too, which is that I think really when you're talking about uh, the number of secondary outcomes that they had, you know, just doesn't surprise me to me that something randomly comes up and I wouldn't put too much too much stock in that at all. To me, it, it really does seem to me largely to be a negative trial negative in the sense of did really find any any effect of probiotic positive or negative on on really anything. I do want to just before we you know wrap up touch on just some of the the issues with the quality of the study because generally it seems to me like this was a pretty well designed study it, as we said it did probably have too many outcomes to be able to really support being able to say anything much about the secondary outcomes but but strongly designed for the primary outcome but the one thing that does trouble me a bit and I can't think of any reason why this would change the results but I think it's worth mentioning is the is the the issue we talked about in Jess's intro which is the the death that so many people died in the study, of course, for the obvious reason that this is a, a much older population in which you expect a lot of death. But because so many people died, it does obscure the ability to actually detect whether or not there is something going on. And I could see an argument for all of that mortality leading to bias towards the null so that if they were an effect, you know, small effect, you might, in fact, miss it. I don't know whether or not you know, there are obviously there are approaches that you can use to deal with that kind of stuff, like competing risks analysis that wasn't used in this. But I also personally don't always know what a competing risks analysis does in terms of interpretation of the results. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to paint that as being an overly important problem, but it does seem to me worth noting. Jess, any any sort of study design issues or other concerns that you want to raise? I would note one more thing in looking at their enrollment flow chart. I think in addition to the fact that it seems many enrolled people died, they had a lot of people who were excluded, who were who were recruited and then not enrolled. And they were not as specific as I would have wanted to, know, to see kind of as to why. So just looking at it, about 1,300 people were evaluated for eligibility and 999 people were excluded from the study for various factors. And they go through a number of them. But can then I, can of I that, just sorry, excluded prior yeah. to randomization? It's excluded prior to randomization, yes. And then of that group, about half of them, 475, they said were excluded for other reasons, quote unquote. If you could see my, I'm doing air quote, if you could mm -hmm. see my quote for you know other reasons. And they don't give why half of their population of people who were excluded, like what were those reasons? Were those people, you know, potentially systematically different than the 300 who were enrolled? And so I think that that was the, I, I definitely picked up on, picked up on that as well, that it was, it was kind of unclear why many participants were, were not enrolled in the end. Yeah. And I would say that's obviously, that's not a, you're not worried there about bias in the study so much as they're mm -hmm more about the generalizability of the findings and whether or not, you know, if you were a, a, a skeptic of the results, whether or not they, you know, chose a, specifically chose a population in which this was destined not to work. I don't really have any reason to think that would be the case, but obviously I agree with you. You want to better understand why it is that they excluded those people. Mm -hmm. Chris, any, any, any last thoughts from you? Uh, a very short one, which, which I'm sort of curious to hear um, how you guys thought about this question, but, you know, the primary endpoint was, you know the cumulative days of antibiotic use. You know systemic antibiotic use over the over you know the period of follow up. Now it it it's a funny endpoint because mm -hmm. it's not really aligned with any specific disease syndrome. So they're right. sort of treating probiotics in a sense as some sort of non-specific health tonic. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. But then it occurred to me that isn't that actually how probiotics are basically marketed as a non-specific mm -hmm. health tonic? So in fact, this is aligned with how. You know, health supplement manufacturers are pitching this stuff to, to clients. And so I was wondering how you guys felt about that. Yeah, I, I did also, you know, have the same reaction as to it seemed like a, a strange endpoint to me and something maybe more specific might, you know, if there was anything going on, you'd be more likely to pick it up. But I, I didn't get the sense there was anything else going on. Jess, what's your, your reaction on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the strengths of this study, actually, was kind of using, you know, kind of using things that people are already using in the ways that people probably use them to try to determine if there is an effect. I mean, I think in terms of the microbiological construct of this study, it would have been awesome for them to also do microbiome profiling. Yeah. Which could have accompanied, right, they could have done it at baseline and they could have done it at 12 months or whenever the last, you know, kind of last follow-up was with the given participant to really show if these drugs were affecting the microbiome. And then so, you know, did it change? Maybe it didn't change at all or did it change? And then could you really make a case that something was or was not connected? So that was, you know, but in the absence of an effect, maybe that's not as necessary. But I think it, 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 it would have been neat. I did appreciate also that they are studying people who live in nursing homes mm. right at the at baseline. I mean, we talk about that now so much with COVID, but it's hard to remember that before COVID, there was very little attention given to people in nursing homes and to research conducted on these populations. And so the fact that they even chose this as a high-risk population, and this was before COVID, I appreciated the attention to this age group. So okay. true. Yep. Yeah. So the one last thing I wanted to raise was this issue of of all of the many outcomes that they had. I, and I'm curious, I mean, I, I think I've said on this program before that I'm not really, I'm not interested in this idea of, of adjustments for multiple comparisons in the sense that you're not going to convince me by doing a, you know, I was going to say fancy statistical adjustment, but it's not that fancy at all. Most of them are really just <laughs> dividing up your alpha. You're not going to convince me that something is more important just because, you know, you had a, a very, very low p-value. But I do pay a lot of attention when there are a lot of outcomes. I get kind of dismissive of almost all of them. Mm. And I'm curious whether you all have the same reactions or you like these multiple comparison adjustments. Chris, do you put any stock in them? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I was reminded by... Uh, a paper I read a couple of years ago where someone had done a whole series of uh, blood tests looking for you know some effect of some drug. I mean the, the the details almost don't matter. And what they had found is that there was some like you know some change in the patient's hematocrit indicating that they they you know these individuals were getting more anemic had shown up as a signal and. You know, though we don't love p-values, the p-value was quite small. I don't remember what it was. Doesn't matter. The p-value was quite small. But the authors said in their discussion that they were discounting it because they used some the Tukey correction or something. Mm. And I'm I, I was sort of you know a little bit outraged by this because it seemed like wait a minute you have gone into this study looking to see if there are phys you know physiological biological harms of this agent and you have found one and you are now discounting it based on some arbitrary statistical test and i, I thought that that was actually totally missing the point of this yep so i i, I, don't know, I guess i i guess i'm with you Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so I think we're we're all in kind of agreement that we don't see much much going on here. We end up in the anti probiotic uh, <laughs> camp, I guess. But if, for those of you who have your pro probiotic uh, hate mail, you can send those to Chris, and uh, I'm sure he'll happily take those. All right, yeah, so let's. My, um, oh. my email address is mfox at bu. <laughs> By the way, can I just ask? So you, Jess, you mentioned that, that they used the the BB twelve probiotic or something like that. Is that related to BB eight from Star Wars? I think it might be. I think, I think so. it might be. It must be right. It, it came from a galaxy far away. Fifty percent better. I assume so. All right, so let's let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about a an, our viewpoint article that was published in JAMA. It was entitled "Cognitive Bias and Public Health Policy." During the COVID-19 pandemic, it was by first author Scott Halpern. And I I got to tell you, I love this paper. Not, not that it was in and of itself brilliant, but it sort of reminded me of some things that I think we tend to forget about in public health. So they start off talking about the fact that we, we, we spent a huge amount of money in the early days of the pandemic investing money in ventilators to try and keep people alive. And there was a lot of controversy about how many ventilators we needed. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that most people who end up on a ventilator are already in bad shape. Not that we don't want to have ventilators, but at that point, the mortality is already very high. And so the decision to allocate resources towards building more ventilators and getting more ventilators comes at a cost of the other things that we could do. And yet, you know, when you looked around, people were very supportive of the idea of building more ventilators. And, you know, the, this article essentially goes into the idea that we have these biases when it comes to 
trying to evaluate the decisions that are available to us. They exist in our lives, but they become very visible when there are public health decisions that need to be made. And you know, these are sort of errors in human cognition. Errors probably should go in, in air quotes. They exist for a reason, but they lead to some very predictable sources of bias. So the, the three that they talk about in this are the identifiable victim effect, present bias, and omission bias. So the identifiable victim effect is the idea that we as people tend to respond more aggressively to threats to identifiable lives. In other words, those that an individual can easily imagine being their own or belonging to people they care about other than hidden statistical deaths that are reported in population. So we react to things that we can understand as happening potentially to us rather than just sort of reacting to the, the large numbers that we see in the statistics. The second one is, is present bias, in which people tend to prefer immediate benefits over larger benefits that would accrue in the future. So we're much more willing to act on the fear of potential deaths from coronavirus that happen now than the potential results that could happen due to the actions that we take to coronavirus in the future, which may in fact be larger. And then the final one is omission bias, which is the tendency to prefer a harm occur by failure to take action that is a direct consequence of the actions that we take. So we don't want to be responsible for the results of our decisions causing harm, and therefore we'd rather take no action if it's going to lead to harm than take action that is going to lead to harm. And these lead to kind of predictable problems in the way that we decide what we do about a problem like coronavirus. And I have certainly seen this in my own particular, you know, my own thinking about coronavirus. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I don't have any specific questions so much as, you know, do you see these things as being very real in your own processes of trying to decide what we should value and what we should be doing about coronavirus? Chris, what's your what's your sense on these? Well, I I guess the former the first bias the uh, what do they call it the the uh, known, identifiable victim the identifiable effect. victim virus it can also be called the Joseph Stalin bias right because wasn't Stalin the the fellow who popularized the expression you know the death of one person is a tragedy but the death of a million is a statistic yep mm-hmm. um, which is sort of ironic coming from Stalin yep so I I guess that that's true but I I also sort of felt like this paper in general suffered from like the the 2020 vision or the Saturday, you know, the, the Monday night quarter quarterback bias. Yeah. Hindsight is 2020. Hindsight is 2020. Exactly. So, you know, here we are criticizing the decision to, to fret about, about ventilator supply. But I, I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification. You know, mm. first of all, at the time, we, we did not know that ventilators would be so relatively ineffective sure. at saving people's lives. And so at the time, it seemed like this is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Now we know that most people who end up on a ventilator who die on a ventilator do so because we are unable to, to turn off the, the replication of, of the SARS-2 virus. And so the ventilator doesn't solve that problem. If you can't you know, suppress viral replication, the ventilator does not help. So you need a drug that actually will do mm-hmm. that. And then the ventilator could buy you critical time. So I, I think that that argument to me felt a tiny little bit disingenuous because it's, it's arguing now that had we known what we know then, we would, we would have you know, favored other things. Possibly true, but we didn't know it. So at the time, it felt to me like it was a, was a crisis. The second thing is that it, 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 it kind of assumes that the role of sort of macro policy decision making is in the hands of the individual clinicians who are making decisions about like whether to put a patient on a ventilator. And that's not how how doctors are trained. That's not how we. That's not how I was trained as a physician. My my job was to assess the problem and to try to provide the, the most effective solution that I I had to that problem. And if that was a ventilator, I would have used it. And I wouldn't be thinking about you know triage of of ventilators until the situation became so extreme where you really are running out of ventilators. And perhaps that happened in New York City to some degree, but it didn't happen elsewhere. And so we we never actually came to that point where we had to make triage decisions about about ventilators. And so I sort of feel like this is an argument about whether physicians should be physicians and do what they're trained to do, which I think is, of course, we should. So maybe. I, didn't, I didn't buy that argument somehow. Yeah, no, and maybe I, I wonder if you're interpreting it 
that way because you are in fact a clinician whereas you know and i and i everything you say sounds totally right to me but i wonder whether we you know we think about this as not a clinician who's actually the one providing the care but as the individual who's just thinking about what should i be supportive of or a policymaker who's trying to decide what what to do whether that might play more of a role right so that gives me to my third point which is that they are essentially presenting this as a as a as a false dichotomy, in my view, a false choice, like ventilators versus other policies we could have invented. But we, but we, we now know, and this, I, I apologize to the listeners who, who really think our, our, our president has done a, a wonderful job, but I personally do not think the president has done a wonderful job. And, and I, I feel like we are looking back at these decisions as if somehow we had to choose either ventilators or sensible you know, mask wearing and social spacing advocacy. We could easily have done both, but we didn't. Right, we we had a, a complete a, sort of failure of leadership at the national level around critical policies that could have been made mm-hmm. that could have turned this into an epidemic that looked more like South Korea instead of more like Italy, but we didn't. We ignored all the evidence in front of us and stuck our heads in the sand like ostriches, and and now we are in a disastrous situation. I don't think it was really about you know present patient bias. I think it was about public policy abrogation of responsibility. I I, yeah, I hear you, and I do think that there is there's absolutely something to that. I, I I do think though, when I think about my own way of viewing these different policy options that we had, I think that my ability to want us to react in a way that deals with the most salient problem, most present problem to us right now, which is we have a lot of coronavirus circulating and we have to do something about it and not think about the consequences of what that might do in terms of you know lockdowns have consequences that can be negative as well as positive and i do think that i i think more about the the immediate versus the the what could happen when we act Jess, what's your what's your sense on these do any of these ring true for you yeah, I I actually, there was a line towards the end of this article that I'm going to read that I think is very interesting. It says, COVID-19 could provide the impetus for greater ascendancy of public health ethics over clinical ethics. Mm. And to me, that was that was the, the take-home punch of this article, was that as Chris was saying, you know, clinical ethics are derived in certain ways, are made in conjunction with clinical colleagues, are made at the bedside. And what these authors are arguing for is that public health ethics should be distinct, right? And they should be distinct and they should be separated from these biases and that there is a role for public health to elevate over these kind of over these biases and over our our human inclinations to value you know individuals over statistics or whatever it might be and that this is a role specifically for public health and they talk about messaging kind of how did we flub the message or why was the message flubbed in the United States like there was in the early parts of the pandemic there was you know everyone was trying to flatten the curve flatten the curve flatten the curve and that you know that draws on this importance of statistical lives it under you know it requires someone to appreciate that under the curve those are actual individuals not statistical individuals but those are real people kind of under the curve and when you flatten the curve it means that fewer of them get sick and die and so they suggest instead of saying flattening the curve, we could have said something like the lives you save could include your own or, you know, something like that or mm-hmm. that of your family to try to kind of, you know, bring home who exactly we are talking about. And so there was this, you know, I I thought there was, there was a, a interesting value in this discussion of how do you message these big public health interventions in a way that resonate most with people. And, you know, kind of identifying, you know, now, you know, and we're quarterbacking on Monday morning, obviously, that flattened the curve. You know, it, it worked in some populations and not in other groups. You know, it didn't have as much of a resonance in certain in, in some communities and did in others. Um, and so what are different ways that we could message kind of public health interventions that kind of play into these biases that people have was kind of one so I had kind of three thoughts. The first was this distinction between clinical ethics and public health ethics and how are they distinct? And is this really kind of the ascendancy of public health ethics over what the individual doctor might do at the bedside? The second has to do with like messaging. And the third was a concern that I had on this piece was, you know, I, I, I do feel concerned. And this comes in part just talking to members of my family who don't live in the Northeast, who, you know, who where, where public health, the image of public health 
is losing in some communities. And we are not viewed very highly. We are viewed as being responsible for the worst problems that are going on right now in many parts of the country. And so to the idea that public health, it, it, it felt a little like trickery to me, like kind of saying, you know, how can you trick people into following along with what we need them to do? It, it, it was my, my concern was that, you know, this sort of thing, it does, it puts public health maybe further at odds if you say go against people's natural inclinations, message in a way that feeds into these biases. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if that exactly made sense, but that was something that just kind of rang through. I, yeah. I totally agree with everything you said, Jess, and I, and I love the way you put it too. And it, it just makes me feel so sad, you know, because we as a nation have faced, you know, existential crises in the past. I mean, if you sort of think about World War II, right? You know, I feel like, you know, it's called the greatest generation, not because, you know, you know, just because they won the war, but because there was this palpable sense of shared sacrifice and a common interest and everybody came together. And so there was a certain, it's not that politics went away, but, but politics took a backseat to the need for the nation to come together for us all to like, you know, focus on this, this one critical goal that actually affected our very survivals. And you know, we are not being attacked militarily right now, but our economy has been utterly destroyed by this and, and need not have been, you know, and people's lives, 158,000 as of this morning have died in the United States. They need not have been. This was not an inevitable consequence of, you know, the COVID-19. To pretend that we were powerless in this is just disingenuous. And so I, I sort of feel like, you know, yes, there was a, a complete failure on, on messaging, but the failure became, you know, came because not, not just that the messages were occasionally wrong, like don't wear masks, that was clearly a mistake, mm -hmm. but also because the, the political leadership in this country has, has systematically undermined or failed to support the public health messaging mm -hmm. out of political expediency. And, and that, to me, that feels like, like almost a crime. So are you saying that that politics over overwhelms any of these biases such that, you know, we really couldn't if we can't solve the political problem, we can't solve the cognitive bias problem? I, I guess that's right, because I, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the author's perspective on this. It's very uh, it's very thoughtful. And I don't disagree with the, the specifics necessarily. But but I don't see that the, these are really the main you know, roots of our problem. I think the roots of our problem were political leadership. And, and in, a, in a sense, you know, this argue, article somewhat argues that there's a, there's a choice between the two. And I don't think there's really a choice. I think you can have both. So I don't know. It, it, it makes me feel a little bit cynical and depressed. All right. Well, we will, we will, <laughs> leave, you, we will leave you in a cynical and depressed state <laughs> as we move on to Yay. our favorite segment, the amazing. Great. And amusing. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Pick yourselves up. I don't know what to do. Oh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first. And I'm going to keep mine short, even though it's got um, there's a lot to it. But this is an article that I don't know. It's certainly not amusing. Uh, it's not amazing either. It's more depressing. That's why I thought I'd go first this Yay. time to just keep it going on. But did you guys see this article? It's entitled Quantifying Professionalism in Peer Review by Travis Gerwing. No, no. No. Sounds intriguing, it's, it's, though. Yeah. This is I just want to make clear from the beginning that while I normally go amusing, this is not amusing. So this was a this was an article in which they were looking at, they were able to get reviewer comments from the field of ecology and evolution as well as behavioral medicine. And they got uh, a little over just under 1500 sets of reviews, reviewer comments. They also did some some uh, case studies where they actually interviewed People and they looked. They they got the reviewer comments through this. I believe it's through Publons, but not one hundred percent sure off the top of my head. And then they went through and they they coded them for you know comments that they considered to be professional or unprofessional. They were not just looking at professionalism, so they were also looking at uh, instances of questionable research practices. You know, unhelpful comments, you know, things where they just sort of say, uh, you're missing literature, but you don't actually say what the literature is or comments that were superficial. But I think, you know, clearly based on the title, what they were most impressed by was the the negative comments. And negative so, in what sense, Matt? Unprofessional. Uh -huh. So so let me give you some examples. So so what they found was that overall twelve percent of the comments sets included at least one unprofessional comment. And I overstated things a little bit because 
when they actually looked at what they're actually looking at in the reviews, there were only 179 of them. So, but 12 percent of those 179 had at least one unprofessional comment. I can go further on the. Can, the, can you give an example or two? Yeah, yeah. So I will give you two. So one would be only the meagerest of efforts was required to see the value or <laughs> lack thereof of this work. Oh, it's not very or, kind. Or <laughs> utterly disappointed in the submission. It achieves nothing and was a waste of funding. Ah, that doesn't um, sound very kind either. It doesn't sound very kind and it doesn't actually sound like it in, in any way you know, helpful or what we want to be, I think, as a discipline, uh, as academics, you know, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it is true, you read things that you do feel this way about sometimes, but it does nothing other than, you know, make you feel good, I suppose, to really say something nasty like this, or to say nasty things. And, 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 and nasty and the, is distinct from, from saying, you know, I really disagreed, I felt that the, the paper absolutely. was was unpersuasive for the following reasons, and I would not recommend its publication, because I think it's wrong. And even even better if you can offer constructive criticism right. that would help ultimately try to get this to a point where you could agree with right. it. Mm-hmm. But to just sort of say you know things like this, I just don't get it. There is that there is a Twitter website handle, but I can't remember which one it was anymore. That that you could you could put inappropriate things that were said to you by reviewers, and mm. I mean you read those, and it's just it's just depressing. So mm-hmm. I just I thought it's worth highlighting this to say that hopefully we are not the kind of people who would say things like this in our reviews, and hopefully our listeners are not as well. Really think about the people on the other end of those reviews, even though it's anonymous. Those are real people who are getting those reviews and saying, you know, saying unprofessional things really doesn't help. Yeah, especially well, for junior people early in their career, for, and for doctoral students and postdocs, and oh, I always feel like that's tragic too yeah. when people get those really negative, mean responses really yep. early in their career, and then it can really affect your sense of self for quite a number of years professionally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, Jess, what do you got for us? Sure. All right. <laughs> Here's a question I know you've always been wondering about: What is the biological function of male facial hair? Oh, um, I feel like it's got to be to make us more attractive. That very well could be. That very well could be, especially now in the pandemic. I think I feel like everyone on, you know, everyone on Zoom is sporting some facial hair. So. I can't see. I can't see Chris's current bearded state. Chris, where are you? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm her suit these days. Her suit. So there are three. There are three of us on this call. Yeah, three men on this call, and we all are bearded. Yeah. So this is a, a you know very appropriate. So this was a paper that was published in a journal called let's see, it's a biology journal. All right, let's see, a biology journal. That I'm, I'll give you the title: Impact Protection Potential of Mammalian Hair, mm. Testing the Pugilism Hypothesis for the Evolution of Facial Hair. So basically, what the authors are suggesting in this biology journal is that the role of male facial hair was to absorb punches. Mm. I like <laughs> okay, it. so that right, so that the furrier your face was. <laughs> the more likely you were able to sustain a facial beating oh, from another oh, male oh, wait. person. Aren't, aren't there people who have those annoying, like, sort of artsy, uh, hipster, you know, facial hair that just makes you want to punch them? Maybe, maybe that, maybe yes. They, they weren't looking at it as as the rationale for for the aggressive behavior, but it's interesting. So you know, they talk through how you know when people fight, they tend to punch people in the face, and this was like the the root of their core hypothesis that maybe you know the mandible they say when superficially covered by the beard is the commonly most commonly fractured facial bone in interpersonal violence, and so they hypothesize that the beards protect the skin and bones when men fight by absorbing and dispersing the energy of a blunt impact. So Mm. what they did, they tested that they did an experiment, okay? They made a fiber epoxy composite as like a bone, you know, analog, and then covered it, okay, with in three different formats. Okay, one that was covered with skin that had thick hair, the furry, the furry model. Okay, skin that had no hair, the sheared or the plucked model. And then they and then they did so they did a sheared one and then a plucked one. Okay, so they had three variants of this um, facial, of this you know this facial model. Okay, and then they 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 used a they call it a drop weight impact tester affixed with. <laughs> A loaded cell to go to, and they basically punched it and went to see how much force it could absorb. Okay, and so they took this model, they punched it over and over, over at different velocities, and then went to see, you know, and then looked to see what what happened. And you know, they had twenty, they did twenty punches.
stages in each, the furry, the plucked, and the sheared condition. And, and they found that it was true that the fully furry samples were capable of absorbing more energy than the plucked and mm. the sheared samples, okay? Wow. And it was statistically significant in their analysis. And, and anyway, so this supports the hypothesis. Wow. They claim that human beards protect the vulnerable regions of the face well, what from about damaging blows. <laughs> what, what about what, Chris? Goatees. <laughs> Go, uh, yeah. Punch to the mouth only. Because I think you'd also have to look at the probability of being punched score as well as the impact of punch. Mm. It's, yeah, I don't know. And also, like, there's, you know, people get punched in the nose a lot too, but there's, I don't know if that's like nostril hair. Oh, yeah, good <laughs> Explain, point. Is explaining that. Ooh, right. yeah, the totally nose beard. Sense. We need a right. nose beard. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. So, anyway, right. a little intriguing, All right. well, intriguing know, scientific tidbit. Now I know why I have this beard. Right. Well, stay right, safe. Chris, stay safe. Stay safe out there. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I, I had. I had actually planned on, on uh, <laughs> this is ironic coincidence, on talking about this paper I read in some obscure journal that, that since I'm not really going to talk about it, doesn't really matter. But it was it was looking at the, the amount of Guinness beer that is captured in people's mustaches. Um, <laughs> you know, over, I, so and I think the they looked at, they tried to model it across Ireland week. or something. And, <laughs> and they, they worked out that something like close to half a million pounds of sterling, like money, <laughs> of beer was wasted because of the amount that gets trapped in your mustache uh, over time. But the more I thought about it, I didn't really think that this argument made sense because you do kind of lick your mustache. So don't you recover some of that? So I thought their methodology was, I, was, was weak. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't factor in the recovery, the mustache recovery, the, the slurping of your mustache. Okay, I don't, so, I don't know what you do with your mustache. But it's just anyway. lost to the wind. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I decided not to talk about that. And instead, I, I, you know, I'd gone to the beach yesterday um, with my uh, daughter and my wife. And we had a lovely day at the beach. We went to Crane's Beach. And one of the questions that came up as we were driving up is whether there are lots of great white sharks in the, in the mm. water. Because if yeah. you guys have the Sharktivity app loaded on your phone, you no, will know should I get it? that that wow. thing, if, yeah, you should get it if you, if you want something else to be really anxious about. Uh, that I would ad advocate to increase your anxiety quotient significantly Ooh. because the alert goes off constantly now. And there was, there was one day like a week ago on the Cape, I think it was August 6th. In fact, I'm certain it was August 6th where I counted 26 great white shark sightings off mm. the coast of, of uh, Cape Cod. Wow. Yeah. Separate sharks, and not just the like, same boom, guy. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So you really start to think like, wow, I, I think I don't actually want to go swimming off the <laughs> outer Cape or inner Cape as it turned out, or, you know, much of Martha's Vineyard anymore. It just seems like, you know, this giant killer fish anyway. So I, with that in mind, I was, I was primed to respond to this study that was in PNAS, as I, I often choose articles from, called Humans Navigate with Stereo Olfaction by a, a Chinese group headed by Yuli Wu in the Institute of Psychology and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And, and it, it, it links back to the sharks because as you probably know, sharks and dogs have stereoscopic olfactory sense, which means that they can follow a scent based on the gradient of, of odors between the left and right nostril. And sharks, of course, are really good at this. And this is how they navigate towards their, their prey. When someone's bleeding in the water, they feel it. It's not just that they're looking, they're sort of swimming up the concentration gradient. They can actually tell that the concentration is higher on the right side or the left side and turn mm. in that direction. And dogs do the same thing. And if you've ever seen a dog like chasing a scent in the field, you know that they do it. They're constantly kind of scanning left and right and then making these turns. And so the question was, like, other are, is this ability to, to smell things in stereo true just of, of certain animals? Is that apparently also true, by the way, in moles and in rats? Who knew? But they wanted to know, is it true in humans? And it is. Oh! My gosh, mm. it, it was. And they, and they did this in this sort of like a, a, a cute and clever way where they had people initially looking at a, a television screen with all these sort of dots blowing at them, like as if they're it seemed like going through warp, warp space in Star Wars, you know, when they yep. pull the liver and the Millennium Falcon goes off into so the you distance could, so and all you the stars the flying by. So, it so you can make the like Kessel that. Run in under 12 parsecs? <laughs> well, I always figured that that was like a, a distance, right? Uh, uh, you know, it sounds like a it should be a time, but it turns out it is a distance. Anyway, yeah. so, you know, they are looking at this zoop screen and they, uh, meanwhile, they have inserted these, this sort of experimental apparatus with two straws up their nostrils. Right up the nose. And they can then you know, project cell uh, scents up the each, the left and the right nose, nostril separately at different concentrations. And they <laughs> had to sort of say, do you think I'm going to the right 
or going to the left. And then they would kind of like move to the right or move to the left where they were asked where the smell is coming from most strongly. And boy, they did such a good job. And, and it was interesting that even though they could consistently turn to the gradient on the screen, indicating the, you know, the degree of deviation because of the scent, they themselves could not say, I smell it stronger on the right, I smell it stronger on the left. It was, it was much more basal that they would just sort of like instinctively turn towards mm. the right or the left. They couldn't tell that. Interesting. And yeah, it was like actually a, really a fascinating experiment proving this. And, and then they went one step further, which was to say, well, is it, is it an absolute value difference? Like if you have a concentration of two particles per million of vanilla smell versus four, uh, concent- you know, particles per million of vanilla smell. Will, will, you know, is it is it is that the same thing as two to four versus four to six versus six to eight? You know, parts per million, or is it a ratio? And it turns out that it's, it's the it's the concentration ratio that pulls you to right or left, independent of the absolute values of the smell. Did they did they do appealing smells and also unpleasant smells to see if you turn towards the unpleasant smell or away from the unpleasant smell? Oh, that's a fascinating. That would, would have been an awesome experiment to follow. But no, they they didn't. But I would actually now that you're saying it, I'm like, yes. I wonder if you know they, certain they smells. Do that. Like, oh, they they didn't the do direction. the Chris Gill sticky <laughs> sweat sock smell test. Uh, they went for the, the pleasant vanilla smell test. And and but you know humans. Humans can navigate by smell. Very and it's not cool. just like mm. it's stronger as I move to the right. It is. It is the left-right gradient that's actually pulling them to the right. Very cool. Totally useless. Interesting. Fascinating yeah. to know. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx. You can tweet me at, at @prof_matt_fox or Chris at id.gill or just do you have a Twitter. I do, but it's it's it is hence unused. It is so maybe dormant. I should jump in. It is dormant. So maybe by next episode I'll get it up and going. All right. I Are haven't you... been a big Twitterer, but maybe I should become one. All right. Well you you can do that or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing. And having the most punchable face in the business. <laughs> oh, and I say that I say that only because he has the biggest beard, not for any other reason. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll download our next episode.